22 if you want to. Um, it's on page 22. Chapter 22 on page 22, I think, in the Bibles. And um, just give you a moment to find it. So, so last week we were thinking about um, uh, Paradise Lost. We were thinking about Adam and Eve, you know, driving cars driving on a straight road and they drove it into a ditch. And uh, I sort of reflected last Sunday that, uh, you know, if you've driven your car into the ditch, you need a you need to be rescued, you need someone to come and pull you out. And that's what we're going to think about this morning, is having thought about Paradise Lost, we're going to think about uh, Redemption promised. So, uh, let me read uh, Genesis chapter 22, verses 1 to 14. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and saddled his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac and he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father Abraham, Father, yes my son, Abraham replied, the fire and the wood are here, Isaac said. But where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. When they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God, because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up, and there in a thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt, as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called called that place, the Lord will provide. And to this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. So let's pray for a moment before we um, uh, unpack this passage. Father, thank you. Uh, Thank you for your word, for your inspired word. Uh, Your living word that gives us life and shows us the way of life. Father, give us wisdom and understanding this morning as we consider these words. May our hearts and minds be open and attentive to you. Before we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, on, uh, on the surface, this is a really uh, difficult passage for us. It is, uh, on, you know, at face value, it is uh, shocking, it's... Um, offensive, it it seems to speak of a God who is cruel and despotic, it's the kind of passage that Richard Dawkins 
uh, read and then made his assessment of the kind of God that he sees um, in the Old Testament. Uh, so we need to kind of uh, grapple with it and uh, try and understand what's really going on here. First of all, just in, in terms of the context, uh, just we also have to be careful not to uh, sort of not to judge um, things that happened in the past by the culture in which we live today. So just as an example, if uh, if a couple of hundred years ago. Um, Emma had come to church one morning and said, oh, Gabe's got himself, I've got Gabe a Saturday job, uh, it's going to be a chimney sweep. Mm-hmm. And uh, little Gabe is going you know, to be earning some money climbing up people's filthy, filthy chimneys and cleaning out the soot and uh, all of that. A couple of hundred years ago, many of us would not have batted an eyelid. That would have seemed quite acceptable and quite normal that it was an appropriate thing to do with a small child, uh, shove them up a chimney and uh, sweep soot. Uh, now, if Emma were to come and say, I've got, Gabe is going to be cleaning chimneys, we would be horrified and call social services and have the children taken into care. Uh, because the way we view the world has changed. So one of the things we need to understand about the context of this passage is uh, the, the people of God are being kind of birthed into a culture where the pagan surrounding nations uh, fairly regularly sacrifice their children. It's a commonplace thing to do and it's an acceptable thing to do and the reason they sacrifice their children in this way is in order to appease the gods who they have upset and the gods who are obviously angry with them because bad things are happening. So if bad things are happening in the world it must be because you have upset your god and therefore you need to appease your angry despotic god by offering a sacrifice. And uh, if things are sufficiently bad, then you need to offer a sufficiently appropriate sacrifice and therefore sacrifice your children. So in the context in which Abraham and the people of God are living, they would be well aware that this is going on around them. So one level for God to ask this of Abraham would not be as shocking as it appears to us. That said... The Old Testament uh, frequently and specifically forbids the sacrifice of children. It is abhorrent to God. It is abhorrent in God's eyes. It is an abhorrence among the pagan nations that they do this. It's one of the reasons that God calls a people to himself and into a different covenant relationship that doesn't work like the relationships that the pagan nations seem to have with their gods. It doesn't work like that. It's not based in, uh, just in fear. Uh, The people of God are called to something different. And what's going on in this passage is not that a cruel, despotic God is asking something of Abraham that is, uh, is, is wicked and cruel. Because the relationship that Abraham has with God is one of love and one of covenant relationship and one of promise. And we need to just pop back a couple of, um, couple of chapters to the call of Abraham, beginning of chapter 12 in Genesis. Uh, we read this, The Lord had said to Abraham, Leave your country, your people and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So the the basis of God's relationship with Abraham is, I am going to bless you, 
and through you I am going to bless the world. This is good news. This is a good thing. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make you into a great nation and through you the world is going to be blessed. If we move on a bit uh, uh, a bit further, chapter 14, um, uh, Abraham has won a great victory against some of his enemies. And uh, we read this, uh, verse 18 of chapter 14. Melchizedek, king of Salem, the priest of God Most High, blessed Abraham, saying, Blessed be Abraham by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hands. So again, God is promising blessing Uh, To Abraham, in verse 22, Abraham responds by saying, I have raised my hand to the Lord, God most high, creator of heaven and earth, and I've taken an oath that I will accept nothing from you, not even a thread or a thong of a sandal, so that you will never be able to say, I made Abraham rich. God has made a promise that he's going to bless Abraham, and Abraham trusts God that he will make him rich. Beginning of chapter 15, after this, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision, don't be afraid, Abraham. I am your shield. I am your shield. This is the relationship that God establishes with Abraham, Abraham, that he's going to bless him. It's a covenant relationship of love. I am your shield and your very great reward, or your reward is going to be very great, depending on how you you translate that particular phrase. The promise is God has an amazing reward for Abraham because of his faithfulness. Uh, and that's how it goes on. That, and, and then the promise continues, because Abraham raises the issue of, well, uh, how can I have, um, you know, how can I be the father of many nations when I don't have any children? And he thinks, well, maybe, maybe it will be the son of one of my servants, who will, this will be fulfilled through. But the word of the Lord came to him, no, that's not how it's going to happen. A son coming from your own body will be your heir. Look up at the heavens and count the stars, if indeed you can count them, so shall your offspring be. So that's the promise that God makes unmistakably to Abraham. He says, you are going to have a child of your own, and through that child you will have descendants more numerous than the sand on the seashore and the stars in the sky. So that's the context of of chapter 22. Abraham and God are in this covenant relationship of love and of blessing and of promise. And when the promise is made to, uh, uh, to Abraham that this is going to happen, we read that Abraham believed the Lord and it was credited to him as righteousness. So God makes this promise, you're going to be the father of many nations, uh, you're going to have your own child, your own son, and through that son you will have more numerous offspring than sand on the sea and the Stand in the sea, stand on the seashore, and the stars in the sky. That's the promise, and Abraham believes him. So chapter 22 is all about the sovereignty of God. And it's all about whether or not those who are called by God will trust in God's sovereignty. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. So God has made this promise, you're going to have a son. And through that son, you will have offspring more numerous than the sand on the seashore. Abraham believes him. And now God says, 
take your son and sacrifice him on the mountain. So God has made a promise. He seems to have provided the fulfilment of that promise. And now the fulfilment of that promise seems to be being taken away. What do you do? Well, fast forward to the New Testament and uh, the time of Jesus, the people of God have been waiting. They've been waiting for God to fulfil a promise. And the promise of the Old Testament, the people of God have been waiting for God to fulfil, is the provision of one like King David. One who will sit on the throne of David, the anointed one of God, the Messiah, the one who will raise up the people of God once again, who will establish Israel as an independent nation, who will rule and reign, who will eject the Romans as the occupying force from Israel and who will rule and reign over a newly revived people of God. The people of God wait for that promise to be fulfilled for hundreds of years and then Jesus comes onto the scene and as Jesus ministers and teaches and demonstrates the kingdom of God, the disciples begin to wake up to the fact, well maybe this is the fulfilment of the promise, maybe this is the saviour, maybe this is the Messiah that we've been waiting for. And in Luke chapter 9, we have this occasion where Jesus is with his disciples and he says, who do you think I am? And Peter answers, the Messiah, the Christ of God. You're the one that we've been waiting for. You are the one who's going to fulfil the promise that God has made. You're the one who's going to restore everything that has gone wrong. And Jesus says, you're right, but... The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests and teachers of the law and he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. And then very shortly afterwards, as we know, verse 51 of chapter 9, Jesus sets his face for Jerusalem and he's going to Jerusalem in order to die. So how does this work? They've been waiting hundreds of years for God to fulfil a promise and finally the fulfilment of the promise is there in their midst. The Messiah, the one we've been waiting for, the saviour of the world, the one who's going to be a king like King David, who's going to sit on the throne in Jerusalem and establish uh, Israel as an independent nation. And Jesus says, I'm going to die. And for the disciples, it doesn't... It doesn't compute at all. In Mark's Gospel, where Jesus um, says this, uh, Peter takes him to one side and he says, no, 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 you've got it all wrong. That's not what happens to the Messiah. The Messiah doesn't suffer and die. And Jesus has to take Peter aside and rebuke him and say, no, you don't. You don't understand the ways of God. You don't understand the sovereignty of God. With With the disciples, it's the same thing. God has made a promise. He's provided the fulfilment of the promise and now it seems he's going to take it away. And the disciples are completely flawed and they don't understand. Abraham sets us a better example because he doesn't bat an eyelid. He doesn't bat an eyelid. There's, there's, no, you know, there's no pushback from Abraham. He has such trust in the promise of God and the sovereignty of God that he doesn't argue. So often in the Old Testament, when, when um, people are called by God, there's an argument. You know, Moses, Saul, David, Gideon, you know, almost invariably, you know, there's pushback. And they're like, no, I'm not going to do it. You know, Jonah, that's why Jonah ends up in a whale. He's like, no, I'm not going to do it. Ain't no wonder Abraham is the father of Israel, you know, the father of the people of God. Because he has this relationship with God where even where what he's being asked to do flies in the face of everything he's been promised, he still trusts in the sovereignty of God. 
It's, it's an, extraordinary, an extraordinary thing for us to take on board. Do we trust in the sovereignty of God to the same extent? Do we trust in the sovereignty of God so that when he asks us to do something, so that when he calls, even when it kind of flies in the face of logic, that we're still willing to take a step of faith and, and give up everything? Do we trust this Abraham trusted there's no pushback at all. Early the next morning, Abraham got up, saddled his donkey, took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac, uh, cut the wood for the burnt offering and set off. No pushback. It's like, Lord, if this is what you're asking, then I will do it because you've made a promise and you're going to fulfil your promise. Even if you're asking me to do something that flies in the face of that. It's like Jesus going to the cross. It seems to fly in the face of logic. Because how can Jesus be the Messiah if he's dead? How does it work? Abraham sets off. Interesting, on the third day, isn't that a phrase we often come across in scripture? On the third day, something significant happens. From the moment that um, uh, Abraham and Isaac set off, Isaac's life is finished. You know, Abraham is going to do this. He is going to see this through. He trusts God. He is going to do this. He is going to kill his son, Isaac. Uh, Isaac's as good as dead by the time they set off. And for this three-day journey, what's going around Abraham's head? What's going around Abraham's head is, how is God going to fulfil his promise? How is God going to... I trust that God is going to fulfil his promise. The question is, how is he going to do it? And for three days, Abraham doesn't know the answer to that question. But he trusts. He trusts God. Jesus spent three days in the tomb. And on Good Friday, when he died, the disciples are wrecked. They are in despair. They are, they are disillusioned. They, um, you know, remember the, uh, you know, on, on Easter Sunday when Jesus is, you know, walking along the two disciples and they said, we had hoped We had hoped Jesus was the one. We had hoped. On Good Friday, all their hopes are dashed. And for those three days that Jesus is in the tomb, the disciples are thinking, well, God has made a promise. God has made a promise. How is he going to fulfil it? How is he going to... Abraham's thinking the same thing. God has made a promise. Through this son, Isaac, I am going to have grandchildren and become the father of many nations and be a blessing to the world. How is God going to fulfil his promise? The only thing that can have, um, we go around Abraham's head, is the only way this is going to happen is if there is some kind of resurrection. The only way God can fulfil his promise is if there is some kind of resurrection. There's no other way, because God has asked him to do something and he is going to do it because he trusts in the sovereignty of God. But if he does it, then God must have a plan. And the only way this plan can be fulfilled is if somehow there is some kind of resurrection. And that's the hope that Abraham has. And as we know for the disciples, when Jesus spends three days in the tomb, that's how God fulfills the promise, is through resurrection, through Jesus rising from the dead. That's how God does it. And so often what happens in the Old Testament prefigures what we see in the New Testament. And here we are, right at the very beginning, chapter 22 of Genesis, God prefiguring what's going to happen through Jesus in the New Testament. So they go on, and Isaac asks the obvious question, uh, uh, you know, we've got the wood and the fire, where is the lamb? 
Where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham says, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering. It's interesting, um, uh, when the, they leave the servants behind, um, Abraham says to the servants, we will worship and then we will come back to you. We will worship and then we will come back to you. See, Abraham knows, he doesn't know how God's going to do it, but he knows God is going to do it. Because he's in this covenant relationship of love and faithfulness with God. And so even though it seems shocking and extraordinary, he trusts God absolutely. He says, we will worship and then we will come back. Uh, But the problem is they've got no sacrifice, apparently. The fire and the wood are here. Where's the lamb? God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering. The two of them went on together. When they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar, arranged the wood, bound his son, laid him on the altar, reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. And he's, and he's going to do it. It's not like um, you know, Abraham's going to sort of, uh, you know, kind of stand there and kind of wait. You know, he's been asked to do something. He trusts in the sovereignty of God. He's going to do it. And then the angel of the Lord cries from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am. Lovely that little refrain that began in verse 1. The Lord says, Abraham, here I am. What do you want? And here it is again. Abraham, Abraham, here I am. What do you want? Do not lay a hand on the boy. Don't do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you've not withheld from me your Son, your, your only son. There's, there, is, there is a mystery. There is a mystery in, in all of this. But it's about God's sovereignty and about whether Abraham will 100% trust in the sovereignty of God. Because only if he can do that can he become the father of many nations. Why are we blessed today? Why are we blessed in the presence of God this morning as we worship? It's because God, um, Abraham trusted in the faithfulness and the sovereignty of God. And because of that, became the father of many nations. Abraham looked up and there in a thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over, took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering. Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. And to this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. On the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. Well where is this mountain? It's in the region of Moriah. Uh, On this mountain, the city of David would be built. On this mountain, the city of Jerusalem would be built. And outside that city, the Son of God would be crucified in the same place, on the same mountain. It's the place where God provides. And look at the parallels with, with what God asks Abraham to do, with what God himself then does. Verse 2, God says, take your son, your only son, whom you love, and sacrifice him there. Again, prefiguring the New Testament, when Jesus is baptised, the Father speaks from heaven and says this, that you are my son, my beloved son. You are my son, my beloved son. John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Genesis 22 is all about the sovereignty of God. It's about prefiguring the redemption that God himself was to provide through the sacrifice of his own beloved son on the cross. And he calls us into relationship with himself, a covenant relationship. Our God is not a cruel, despotic, uncaring God who asks unreasonable things. He's a God who is ultimately sovereign. 
sovereign over us. Uh, we must always remember that although we know the love and the grace and the graciousness of God, we still we live in the fear of God because we remember who he is. Uh, I remember um, somebody uh, saying, uh, uh, I read it a while ago, that we, um, it's like the sea. It's like the sea. We love, we love swimming in the sea. Well, some of us love swimming in the sea, but we have a respect for the sea because we understand the danger of being in the sea. And the fear of God is a, is a bit like the fear of the sea. We love, we love being in the presence of God, uh, but he's still God. It doesn't change. He's still sovereign. There's so much about him that is a mystery that we don't understand. But God, in his love, has provided redemption. And um, as in a couple of weeks' time, as we celebrate the birth of Jesus, we're celebrating the fulfilment of this promise, the fulfilment of God's promise to provide a lamb, the lamb of God, who died for us, who rescued us, as we've sung this morning, the one who died for our sins that we might be free. So paradise was lost, but redemption was promised. And that promise was fulfilled in Jesus. And that's the good news that we have to proclaim.